Hello, Listen Steven listeners. Margo here, welcoming you to our content warning. Before we get the show started, a reminder that this podcast is explicit. This episode in particular contains discussion of sexual violence and assault, spousal abuse, alcoholism, and pedophilia. If any of these subjects are triggering for you, it may be best to give this episode a miss. Thanks, and we hope you enjoy our show. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to Listen, Stephen, Stephen, Listen, a Stephen King book review podcast. Uh, I'm Margo. I'm Lily. And uh, this week, we read uh, Salem's Lot. We sure did. We sure did. Uh, let's, uh, let's crack into it. Let's, yes. Let's... You know, why wait? Indeed. Um, <laughs> Indeed. Life is too short. When did you first read Salem's Lot? I first read Salem's Lot. You know, I said in our last episode, I think I perjured myself because I'm pretty sure that I read, or I might have done Carrie It and then I tried to read Salem's Lot and I got, actually it doesn't, okay, so in in the book, and we'll talk about this in the summary, it doesn't take that long for like, once things start to go bad, they fucking go bad. But it does take a while for things to get bad. So Mm -hmm. I started reading it when I was, I think, a freshman, and then I made it through most of the book. Or not most. I made it through... I think I, like, just got into The Emperor of Ice Cream, which is the second part of the book. It's divided into three sections. Um, And, like, I don't even remember if I made it to the point where, like, Danny Glick died. So the first time I read it, I didn't really read it, and then when I finally read it for realsies, whenever that was... Um, I liked it a lot more. Um, what about you? I, I know I read it very young. Um, I don't remember reading it. I think probably because it was too old for me and Mm. I read a lot of it and didn't understand what was happening. I actually thought I hadn't read it. Um, but I had this memory of the Houdini scene with Mark. Mm, yes. And I remembered that, and I never, I couldn't remember what it was from. Like, you know, when you're a kid, like, you're just going mm-hmm. through so much. You're like, I don't remember what that is, but, like, that stuck in my head for so long. And then, as an adult, I read Salem's Lot, and I got to that scene, and I was like, holy shit, I've read this whole book. <laughs> but that was the oh only God, part amazing. I remembered. Probably because... I didn't understand most of it. I was really young, mm, maybe like 12. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know many things back then, as most mm-hmm. 12-year-olds, you know? I so I think a lot of it I kind of just repressed. Mm-hmm. And then Also, the universe of this book is like, I mean, it's set in a town, but like you have to, it talks about so many different characters and their lives and stuff, and that's a lot harder yeah. for a younger kid to track, which I think is probably why I was quite bored with it when I, and like struggled when I read it too. Yeah... It's not an easy read. It is not. But I know I've read it because I remember that scene of being terrified. I might have stopped reading it after that. I was Mm. so scared of that scene where Mark's just, like, tied up Mm. and, like, trying to gently wiggle out of the ropes 
while waiting like the vampire to come get him very scary to me as a child scary to me as an adult too but less so Mm. because i understand that that situation probably won't happen but as a kid i was like this is gonna be happening (laughs) and i'm not ready well try not to so uh this time around i was yeah this time around i was struck with he really does creepy atmosphere so good does our steven and he does like mounting sense of dread and um, that very much happens in this one. And I liked that a lot. And also this time around, like, I remember the image messing me up, like, on previous rereads. But this one was really just like, God damn it. I genuinely think the worst, one of the, one of the most, like, gut-wrenching moments for me in this is when Sandy goes to, like, feed her baby. Yeah. And she, like the reader knows she knows the narrator knows that the baby is dead and she's like putting it in the high chair and doing a little cute baby voice about how it wants some choco pudding and like she looks at the face of the child she pushes the mouth into a smile and then the chocolate pudding comes out of the mouth and lands on the table and that's when she knows that the child is dead that was the worst thing that i read in this version i was just that was the most upsetting to me also because that character is just a sad person she abuses her child but she's in an abusive marriage and it's just a fucking mess she's 17 she's 17 years old I don't have the patience to have a child now and I'm 25. I don't I don't know that I will ever have children that I raised from infancy. I don't have the patience. And like me 8 years ago, that's just so horrible. And this is something I'm just finding this in our in our first two books and I wonder if this will keep happening that of the books that I'm familiar with, I know where a lot of the the bigger horror set pieces are. So those mm-hmm. aren't the things that scare me because I'm familiar with them. The things that scare me are smaller moments. Carrie wasn't scared, it was just so sad. And in this one, that's another moment of this visceral horror of there is nothing you can do and we all know that the child is dead. The funeral of Danny Glick is is horrible for a similar reason and like there's a lot of good horror in this scary things and upsetting descriptions and tension and whatever but that was the thing that struck me this time as a landmark moment of horror wasn't scary monster horror it was just sadness horror god it's so sad i don't know i was reading it this time and i was just this happened the last time i read it where i was really like this whole town is so awful Everyone in this town is a garbage person for one reason or another. Some are more sympathetic in their garbage than others. They all are so awful. And there's so much about being stuck in the town. And this is another novel where I'm like, just move. Instead of beating your infant child, just fucking pack up and leave. Mm Mm-hmm. An absent mother is better than an abusive mother. Hot take. Instead of beating your literal baby. A literal baby. They can do nothing. Just skip town, you know? Like, just Mm -hmm. leave the situation. Ugh. Alright, well, I want to talk about a whole bunch of stuff, so we should probably give a little background and then a little plot summary and then get into the, the meat. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. 
apparently this is his favorite novel. So he says. Interesting. When one reporter I, asked him. I was going to say, when, when, when was that? Well, I did not write down the year. Pretty recently. Ah, okay. Well, within, we'll say within the past couple of years. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't too long ago, but in the last couple mm. of years, he's been doing a lot more interviews than he mm-hmm. used to do, which I think is fun. Uh, he says it's more closely related to Invasion of the Body Snatchers than Dracula. Is that 1979 TV movie I see in our notes? Yes, there was a movie, which so I didn't know not, about. not the one that you and I saw at the Coolidge Corner Horror Movie Marathon. Because that was also 1970s. Or was that 1967? No, this is entirely, sorry. This is a separate. I'll add a period. There is a 1979. Oh, Salem's Lot TV movie. Okay. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that it's not good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's do that. So this novel is King's second published novel. It's bad. Very exciting, published in 1975, a whole year after Carrie. And it, mm-hmm. like, you don't have to know about the novel to know about those movies. This yes. one, you really, really do. I haven't seen it. I couldn't find it anywhere online. I was gonna, I saw, like, a trailer. It wasn't good. And then I was like, how fun would it be to watch this bad movie? Couldn't find it, so. Well, there we go. Alas. We'll never know. I tried for you guys. Okay. I respect that. And I appreciate you. Thanks. You know who King didn't appreciate? Nixon. Ooh. How's that for a segue? Was that good for you? That was a great segue. That was great for me. Thank you. <laughs> so it's published in 75, written largely around 73, 74. This mm-hmm. is right around the time of the Urban Committee. Uh, Nixon's getting impeached. <laughs> they knew about Watergate. 75 is when he officially gets impeached. Mm-hmm. Um, and also a lot of just general government shadiness is kind of coming out. Mm. Um, a couple of CIA operations are made public, so we're kind of starting to understand that the government is not all right and good and has, in fact, mm-hmm. been toppling democracies all over the world. That's uh, pretty fucked up. Everything these hippies down at the corner store are talking about is, like, true. And it's like, yes. Oh I love Stephen's simultaneous liberal Democrat leanings and utter disdain that his characters have for hippies. I think... It's similar to his idea that all of his main characters are writers, but he hates art and, like, artists. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we believe ben, the same things, We'll talk about Ben Mears is not like other girls. He's not like other girls. Like, he's a serious-minded fella. Yeah. He, like, drinks beer and doesn't have patience for art theory. Yeah. You know, he anyway. works after dinner. He works at writing like it's his job. Oh, my God while getting oh drunk God. in the middle of the day yeah, like a normal well, job anyway so that's happening there's also a mm-hmm. ton of crime happening um ted bundy yeah. gets arrested in 75 mm. people are kind of starting to hear that it's the first time they've been like what do you mean a murderer could be like this hot young guy mm. that's what all murderers look like yeah as we will now learn now looking as, back at ted bundy yes. with a recent documentary i know a lot of people are kind of like he obviously looks like a serial killer, but they genuinely didn't know for no, a lot like, of really awful reasons. <laughs> These were assumptions based completely on class and racial guidelines. I mean, um, Samuel Little is a serial killer who killed, he confessed to over 90 murders. 
90 and he got away with it for so long for like 40 years because yeah if you want to get away with killing people you just have to kill the people that society doesn't care about yeah this is a current true crime case you can look it up they're still trying to find out information about these women and it's because he poor he was homeless for a lot of it so it was his Mm -hmm. community he's like here in my community i can do whatever i want Mm -hmm. and the cops are never going to care about it and he was right, yeah. by and large. They would find these women dead, and they would just say, oh, mm-hmm. it's probably drugs or a job And John Mulaney, like, jokingly talks about this. He's like, I grew up before kids were special. And part of the whole kids being special is the PSAs of it's 11 p.m. Do you know where your children are? Being aware that we need to have a higher degree of care of looking after people yeah. because there are serial killers. There are people who do these horrible things and walk among us. And we should pay attention to how we interact with people we don't know and, like, we are not nearly as safe as we had supposed. Yeah, and that literally happens with the Glick family in this novel. They're like, oh, okay, have fun, be back by 9. And then at 10 p.m., the mom's like, huh, they where are our kids? They should have an hour ago. And the dads are just like, all right, well, let's go, you know, go to the woods. It's fine, whatever. I'm going to get mad at these fucking kids. They're making yeah. their mom worried. I'm going to beat the shit out of them. Yeah. Also, don't do that. Also, yeah, side note, anyone who says that you're... Like, my parents sent me and I grew up fine. No, you didn't grow up fine because you think it's okay to hit kids. Not to get too spicy, but in my onion, uh, that's fucked up. Yeah, I mean, my parents hit me and I grew up fine because I've been to so much fucking therapy. (laughs) But yeah, so it's it's a time period of a lot of angst. A lot of people realizing things were not safe. Mm -hmm. The safe was not safe. Anyone could fall victim. Patty Hearst is a good example of that because she was this very rich publishing heiress who got kidnapped by this something liberation army. But it was a good example of that. She was this rich, pretty white girl. Mm-hmm. And no one ever thought bad things could happen to, to people who were in this economic class, who were in this racial mm-hmm. group. And the 70s were all about understanding that, yeah, <laughs> it could happen me. to you. Yeah, this is also a very... This happened in Carrie as well. There was a character who was like, that can't be happening here. And this is also a very that can't be happening here, the novel like type situation. Yeah, it does happen kind of anywhere. And I think we'll get into this mm-hmm. as we discuss. But uh, when you look at it in terms of how metaphorically it can imprint into the real world, it's like literally mm-hmm. happening everywhere. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's very scary. And I think that's something that King was very anxious about in his mm. personal life, not just because his life was going through a series of changes. So Carrie had been published, it had done pretty well, he was excited about it, you know, mm. he got an offer for his next book, which is really all you can ever ask for after your first book is published. Yeah, pretty much. Um, but his life hadn't really changed yet, but it was kind of this idea of maybe it could. This is real life, this could actually work out for me. And the hard thing about Stephen's early works is that they're written so back to back to back it's mm-hmm. really hard to draw any clear of this was the year that this happened because it's mm-hmm. also the year that these other novels came out or were written at least and so yeah. it's, it's kind of yeah. hard to say to draw those kind of life comparisons but mm-hmm. it was a period of flux for him like you know he was married and had these kids and was like this could be you know mm-hmm. us maybe oh, yeah, we could have a nice house to Naomi his daughter yeah mm-hmm. so it's, it's a very anxious time and he's drawing a lot about his own childhood dreams and trauma that he kind of experienced i know he had like a horrible nightmare when he was a child about a corpse and he has been thinking about it his whole life the dream that ben talks about or the experience where ben goes into the the um 
was going to say the Munster House. That's not right. <laughs> the Marston House. It'd be it's, very different I if mean, you went to the of. Munster House. Into the Marston House and sees the the corpse of Hubie Marston there. Yeah, so yeah, so he had this dream. And it's also interesting, the character of Ben is one of the more egregious Stephen King XPs. But he's allowed. This is a very self-insert character, but also the self-insert character is returning to his childhood home to reckon with his past. Yeah. It's just, I do want to talk about this in more depth, the the mm. idea of Ben as a Stephen King insert, because it is a mm. very interesting depiction of oneself. Indeed. But we'll um, get into also, it as we go, I think. yeah, shout out to Tabby for telling Stephen that his original title, Second Coming, sounded like a sex manual. Because, uh, you know. Right. Not wrong. Also, Jerusalem's Lot was the initial title, and then the publisher was like, this is very religious. No, thank you. So he rebooted it. Which leads to one of my least favorite grammatical things, where that when you write the title, you cannot, you're not supposed to capitalize the S in Salem's. Because it's, yeah, it's apostrophe, and then when they talk about it in the book, they use the lowercase because the full name is still Jerusalem's Lot of, like, the town. I it's a colloquial like nickname. When they just call it the lot. Me too, because I hate. It's just I'm trying to stay, you know, true to how they put it in the book. Because my autocorrect always is like, "Oh, you wanted a capital S here," and I'm like, "You're right. I do want that." But yeah, Second Coming is a terrible okay. title. We owe so much to Tabitha King. She's done so much work on his novels. I know we mention this every episode, but it really cannot be stated how much influence Tabitha Listen, King has had over Stephen so King's much. literary career. And she never gets any credit. He gives her credit, but no one else gets her credit. I don't know. Stephen is not quite in the pantheon of men I trust because of how they talk about their wives, but I do largely trust him because of how he talks about his wife. I just wish he talked about other women in his novels better. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> then that's I would true. trust him, I think. Case in point, getting into the plot summary of this this, God, this bad boy. Yes. We, uh, we open... Uh, a brooding writer. We ben don't Mears. open with a brooding writer, actually. Yeah, we don't open on the him. Whole, we open in Mexico, I believe? Yeah. a so, mysterious man and boy. It's the brooding writer. It's the brooding writer. But um, he has a boy now, and they're not related, but everyone thinks they're related, and they're just... And they're, like, driving through the country. by their mysterious past. Ooh. They I go to Mexico. The child joins the we'll church. And the priest is like, is this true? And the man's and then like, the dude yes. Is like, yeah, yes. And then they decide that they need to go back to the town because they read things in newspapers and people keep disappearing and stuff. Yeah. And, and then, then we begin. We open on a brooding writer. <laughs> the chronological beginning. Yes. I guess. The chronologically of this book is kind of all over the place. But a little, a little our bit. current world, the 70s. Ben Mears. He's driving into town. He is sad. His wife died in a terribly traumatic motorcycle accident that was, like, kind of his fault, kind of not, but he has a lot of guilt over it. Mm-hmm. But don't worry, he's gonna mention his dead wife, like, like five cool. or six times. I was gonna, wow, you were more generous. I was gonna say, like, twice? But you're right, it does come back, like, five or six times. Three of them within, like, the first couple of ages. Yeah. Uh, so don't mm-hmm. worry, he's not really gonna be sad. He's hot to trot. He's an author, he's written a couple books, they sold okay, he can't live in his old house anymore, it's too haunted by the memories. 
So he decides to come back to his even more haunted uh, childhood town. Yeah, which is not the town he fully grew up in. He lived a very terrible childhood. Yeah. As we learn over the course of the book, his dad, did he die or did he just leave? He's not in the picture, but I don't remember this. He's not in the picture, and his mom had a nervous breakdown, so she sent Mm -hmm. him to live with her sister for a couple of years. It wasn't just a summer, it was a good chunk of time. Yeah, he came there in the summer, but he spent four years there. Yeah. And then she died, and then he got shipped off somewhere else, if I recall? The fire happened. The fire happened, that's right. And so then he went back with his mom for a little bit, Mm -hmm. and then a couple years later she killed herself. And then we don't know what happened after that, but eventually he Jesus Christ. got married and was a writer. You know, for how traumatic Ben's past is, I feel like we really don't spend enough time on it. But what do I know? He really I just mean, has this, like, drive into town where he thinks about his dead wife. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, ooh, that barn's still there. Oh, yeah. And he's like, oh, that thing is still there. And also the spooky-ass... Marston how god now I have it I have it in my head that it's Munster it's stuck in my brain that it's the wrong thing now that's fun the M house the spoopy M house is still there still haunting the town meets a girl named Susan I don't know what it is with Stephen and Susan's he reuses uh, a lot of names though he reuses a lot, a lot of names. but Susan um, is always his good girl Susan is like a classic in his at least his but early writing also to be fair names are hard and if you come up with a good one reuse it Patrick Hoxtetter that's a good name yeah, that's a good one you're right anyway but he sees a spooky house he's like I'm gonna rent mm-hmm. that they're like no sorry it's been bought he's like all right I'm gonna Isaac. write about it <laughs> And he meets several townspeople. They're all mm-hmm. horrible in their own unique ways. He meets Indeed. Susan in the park. And he thinks she's really young, but he still asks her to hang out. And yeah, that was weird. He asks her to go get a soda. And it was like... There's a point where she's asking too many questions, and he's like, drink your soda. <laughs> like oh, a yeah. dad. And, uh, whatever. It's a weird relationship, but they start a relationship right away. They do. Whatever. She's nice. Fine. They click really well. He feels really mm-hmm. good about it. He loves the town. He's getting mm-hmm. a lot of writing done. Um, oh, yeah. He's having a good time. You know, he meets her parents. Her mom hates him. <laughs> Off the bat. His dad loves him. They drink a lot of beer together. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also murders him in badminton. Yeah, he's really good at badminton, Which apparently. I thought it was funny. Classic dad move. Uh, he and mm-hmm. Susan have sex in a park. Yeah. Don't have fun. public sex, guys. It's like but having like, sex on a beach. Fun to read about, maybe, but the actual logistics of doing it, no thank you. Yeah, as with most things, it's definitely worse for the person with the vagina in the situation. That's true. I'm sure for Ben, it was all fine. They don't even have a blanket. They have A picnic coats. turns into something Ugh. I can understand. But just being so into each other that you need Part to the, bone the on the ground. The town's right lore now. is that there was this big fire. No. She's it's like, oh, I'm teenage in a way that's really weird because he's in his 30s. He's a, and, was and she's married. like, thanks, I think. Yeah. And he's I'm like, a grown no. ass adult who can't take a girl to his room. And it's like, okay. Yeah. But he's having a great time since yes. he got to town. It's been wonderful. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the spooky house that he tried to rent has been bought spookier. and it's being moved into by a couple couple bros 
who of R.T. Straker and Kurt Barlow. Yes, uh, Richard Throckett Straker. What a name. Such an awkward uh, name. And we only meet Straker, Straker at first. And they're moving into the town. They're going to live in that house. They're going to open up an antique store. It's a little on the nose, but, you know, it's fine. And, mm-hmm. and also, of course, everyone out. in the town is like, two men living together and opening an antique store. We know what that is. And it's also like, I mean, you're not wrong but also they're monsters so thanks i hate it yeah you anyway chose the wrong thing to worry about yes you really did genuinely people are kind of weirded out by them but they like striker they're like fine whatever yeah striker's nice so they show up town around the same time also the uh petrie family moved in a little bit beforehand a nice family Mm -hmm. with their son mark who Who is of course the perennial figure of the uh, eerily precocious child. Yeah, he's smart. Which Steven does a lot. He's emotionally mature. He's not like other kids. He's gonna he's fight very... his bullies. So many not like other. Yes, Mark is not like other girls in terms of children. He's what Stephen King wishes he had been as a child. Mark is great, and he meets yes. two local. Well, he meets one local kid who's in his class, Danny Glick. Mm-hmm. And Danny's going to come over to Mark's house with his little brother. And look at all the universal monsters. Yeah. And they decide to take a shortcut through the woods to get there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and something happens. And Danny's n- not knocked unconscious. He goes unconscious. Mm-hmm. And his little brother is nowhere to be found. Um, his parents are very worried. And then he shows up. He's like, I don't know what happened. Uh, the cops you know, everyone searches the woods thinking he just Mm -hmm. fell or, you know, got lost or something. They can't find him. The sheriff starts asking around and, like, asking Ben questions because he's a newcomer. Ben Mm -hmm. is just, like, annoyed by that. Yeah. (laughs) Not taking it seriously at all. And then Danny, he's been sick ever since, and about a week later, he dies in the hospital. Mm -hmm. He's severely anemic, even though they've been treating him. What's going down here? Well, he has a horrible vision that the kid is staring at him. Yeah, the kid is just staring at him. It's not that he's alive, it's just that he's staring at him. I should just shovel out all of the dirt I just put in this hole, open up the coffin, no, break the lock on the coffin, open it up, Mm -hmm. and just just make sure his eyes are closed. A totally normal response that any 22-year-old would have. Oh god, I forgot. That's right, Mike is fucking 22. Yeah, he hasn't finished college yet. Also, to be a 22-year-old and be comfortable working in a graveyard, I don't know, that just seems like a chill dude. I appreciate having that sort of stance on life and death at that age. Yeah, he's super relaxed and not normally the type of person that would, would again, break into a coffin. (laughs) Yes. A child's coffin. Anyway, Ben spends some time with Susan. He also meets a local teacher named Matt. Yes. We Mm -hmm. love Matt. We do love Matt. I love Matt. Matt. But they they headed off. Ben and Matt, they're friends. Ben talks to his class. And so at this point, we should all know what's going down. I guess. That's the 70s. And then, you know, he has a funeral. Mm-hmm. The local gravedigger is just, like, weirdly compelled to just open up the coffin. Whoops. And Matt's like, okay. And Matt's like, 
chill at my house. Dude. Yeah, come sleep you in my know, guest room. So good. It'll be fine. I'll keep an eye on you. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can get some fucking sleep. <laughs> if only. During the night, Matt hears Mike invite someone in, and then he hears a child's laughter. <laughs> and, and then, then he calls Ben at 4 a.m. <laughs> and is like, some shit's happened, and I don't know to whom I should speak, so I'm just calling you, I guess. I'm scared. Fuck? And Ben shows yes. up with a borrowed crucifix, and they're yes. like, we gotta check on him. And Ben's like, okay. No, you don't understand. I think there are vampires. And Ben's like, no, dude. Okay. I don't think there are vampires. He definitely thinks something's going on in the town. But it's not he does not think it's vampires but they check on mike he's dead um all of the people in this book and in a lot of vampire lore once they finally die from the vampires feeding off of them they look very alive they look super healthy super happy the effects of the vampire is they're eventually like preserves Mm -hmm. blood's back in their cheeks they look ready to go they look hot they look like they're gonna pop up at any second which they will if you just give them a couple hours yeah. <laughs> Mike is dead and he kind of freaks out a little bit. Ben's like, "All right, just hang out. We're going to go to the Marston house tonight, you, me, and Sue. We're going to get to the bottom of this." But that doesn't get to happen because Ben gets beaten by Susan's ex-boyfriend in a yes. part of the novel that I still Mr. Floyd Tibbets. It feels so out of place. All of a sudden, this is just a book where he's going to it's supposed to be scary, and I understand why it's in the daytime. It's it's in the daytime at this point. Yeah, so like Floyd is wearing gloves and stuff, but I picture rubber kitchen gloves, and that also makes me picture Floyd in an apron for some reason. And it's just not scary. The thing is, it's supposed just... to show how out of character it is for Floyd. It's supposed to be like he's being influenced by something bad, but we don't mm-hmm. really know anything about Floyd other than he likes than, to drink like, at three p.m. So, and also that he is jealous of Ben for, like, having Susan's attention. So from what we know of him, it seems totally in character, and it's everyone else telling us, this isn't like him at all. And it's like, hmm, sure wish that I had literally any knowledge of what his character was like to back up that this is out of character. Sorry, that was slightly not true. We know that Floyd was one of the kids when Ben was a child that dared him to go into the Marston house oh, in that's the first right. place. You know that. He really wanted to be friends with Floyd and some of the other kids, and they were like, well, you can mm-hmm. hang out with us, but you gotta go to this creepy haunted house and bring something outside. You mm-hmm. know how kids are. Breaking laws all the time, trespassing, it's fine. Did you not tra- I trespassed as a child. I did not. Our neighbors had this sick-ass forest of bamboo, and you could get to it by walking through a couple different backyards, so I would just, like, trespass on over into the bamboo. Yeah, I grew up in really shitty neighborhoods, so usually there that's, were, like, yes, people living true. everywhere. I say that's added. true. As a, I meant that it's true that I grew up in a very wealthy neighborhood. That's true. I don't know what you're any... You're from a shithole. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, you're fine. It you're was. <laughs> you wouldn't know that, but you would be right. Uh, but yeah, so we know that he was a childhood bully and that he's mad that Susan's dating another guy, even though they weren't really dating, according to her. Of course he would beat up that. That seems completely logical to us, but everyone yes. else is like, he was, it's like he was compelled by a force and it's one of mm-hmm. the least, I don't know, effective. effective vampire things to happen. 
So Ben's in the hospital, and Susan visits him, and he's like, you gotta ask Matt about everything. And she's like, okay. So she asks Matt, and he's like, there's fucking vampires. Oh, yes, Matt also gets a, uh, suffers a heart attack. Yeah. And ends up in the hospital. Yeah, he's like, there's fucking vampires. And Susan's like, no, there fucking aren't, you idiot. <laughs> and then he's like, I hear something upstairs. And it's he hears Mike's come in because he has an invitation into oh, yeah, Matt's house. Right. And he mm-hmm. has to, like, revoke the invitation. And he, like, leaves and says something spooky. And then Susan hears it. She's like, what the fuck was that? And then <laughs> Matt's like, could you just do me a favor? Could you call my doctor? I'm having a heart attack. I, oh, yeah. That's, I forgot about that. <laughs> and she's like, what the fuck? And he, she calls his doctor. And he's just like, call the ambulance. <laughs> Multiple times it's mentioned that we need to go talk to Father Callahan, the priest. And things transpire, and no one talks to Father Callahan. And so I think, like, so Susan decides to go to the house and check out what's what. Yeah, she's going to get to the bottom of this, because she's cold and logical. She doesn't believe in vampires. Everyone else Mm -hmm. is an idiot. She's going to figure it out. And while she's there, she runs into this literal child, who also is like, like, I think they're vampires. (laughs) Most grating parts of the book for me is, like, Susan... Susan gets mansplained to by so many people, including a literal child, and I just, like, I know. really did not enjoy it at all. And I get that Mark is a Stephen King precocious child character, but also not a fan. So they go into the house to try and investigate, and then Mark gets tied up and then has to use, like, the powers of Houdini to escape, and he kills... Straker, or, like, mortally wounds him, and then Barlow has to yeah. kill him, which he's really pissed about. You know, the way that you might be if someone killed your dog, you'd be like, that was my favorite dog! And I was like, well, he wasn't It's more person. like if someone stole your favorite wrench. Actually, that's, yeah, that's better. And you're like, That was Man. my favorite tool! It tightened bolts so well. It fit my hand perfectly. Ah, now I have to throw it in the garbage. I could use it for exactly what I wanted. Ugh. Now I have to just drain it of its life force and leave it hanging that from the That wrench had such an eye for antiques. You would not believe. <laughs> so now Barlow's pissed, and he's like, hmm, yes. well, there's this lady here. So I'm just going to turn her into a sexy vampire lady. So what else? Oh, yeah, so Father Callahan tries to have a showdown with Barlow, and then Barlow is like, mm, you suck. And also, you don't actually believe. Uh, so he gets turned turned into a vampire, question mark? We don't really he know. He will not show bitten. up for another He's unclean. Several... He gets on a bus and just fucking leaves. He actually shows up in the fifth Dark Tower novel yeah. as part of the wider myth arc. And that was published... I'm going to when was it published it was published in 2003 so we won't see him for another 30 years peace yeah matt dies of a heart attack father callahan has to leave town like pretty much everyone is a vampire mark's parents are dead um barlow's Susan... hiding out in the basement of the boarding house that ben had been oh yeah in. and so the vampires saying, yeah. rig a floor of upward pointing knives and like oh yeah saw and... off the stairs he, and yeah, so it's like, like Jimmy Cody alone. walks down the first two steps. Yeah, it is Home Alone, except actually Except knives. Jimmy Cody, like, the doctor goes down the stairs and just falls on a bunch of knives. Um, so incredibly traumatic to see. 
which Mark sees, which I'm sure is great Awful. for just terrible. Bills. Mark and Ben team up, and in a horribly traumatic scene to read, Ben kills Susan via stake through the heart, and then they kill Barlow too, and then they flee for a period of months. Is it? Is it? A year time? I forget for uh, some period of time, and it's then at they least roughly come back, a yearish, like and several like, months or a year. Time to burn this town to the ground, and then just kill all yeah. the vampires. Yeah, because they left. they killed the head vampire, but there's still so mm-hmm. many fucking vampires in town, and they're all just turning each other into vampires, and then like yeah. eating tourists. <laughs> so they just have to burn the mm-hmm. entire town down. They do it during the day, so everyone's sleeping, and then they're mm-hmm. just like. Oh, great. We did it. So I want to talk about, to start, oh yeah, where where do I want to start? There's so um, much to discuss. There's, this is, this is a, a, a big meaty boy. <laughs> um, oh yeah, okay, so I want to talk about a couple things. So the town is dying before the vampires ever show up first of all. Yeah. Um, and there's this weird thing of, like, modernity encroaching on the old way of life. Mm-hmm. Um, because this town is, like, it's a small town. It's pretty rural. It's, like, fairly agrarian. Um, even the name of the town, it has its roots. Like, it's it's rural Maine. It's, like, farm country. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of time, especially when we first meet Ben and when Ben starts talking to Susan, a lot of their relationship, what they first connect over is like what they remember from the town and how it's changed. Yeah. Um, so they talk about that there's, first of all, there's a trailer park, but also that every single uh, trailer in that park has a new like TV aerial for color television on it. Yeah. Um, and Susan and Ben talk about they want to go see a movie and there aren't any movie theaters in town anymore because the, they're like drive-ins in town's over and like this one has closed. There's there's an element of like kids these days by one of the, I think it's like one of the constables at one point in time um, talks about how like everything is changing. There's already this theme from the very start of returning to your childhood home to find out that things have changed and to mm-hmm. also, which is like a thing that will come back in it in a big fucking way i love that book a lot it's interesting because this is intensely about the horror of small town life as a lot of stephen king is but it's also it becomes a ghost town because of what happens to the people who live there but the town itself is drying up already the mill has closed people are kind of like moving off kids graduate high school and never come back because there's also this idea that i want to talk about where it's kind of like the modern world has killed ghosts. Matt talks about it a lot mm, on yeah. my, you know, Kindle ebook version of page 180. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he talks about how, like, yeah, monsters are real. They're mass murderers and creepy dudes and mm. not this. This isn't real. You know, birthmarks are just birthmarks. Like, people who come back from the dead were just not actually dead. They were unconscious. It's a heap of blankets, not a monster. The idea that that's inherently dangerous because it teaches you that monsters aren't real, everything's fine, but monsters are real in this novel, and it's not fine. So that happens with Susan, where she's like, they're being ridiculous. There are no vampires. That's crazy talk. And so she's like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to prove it. And that ultimately is, it kills her because she's like, I don't believe in this. I won't engage in this. I know what the world is. I'm the modern age. 
And so she and that's also... tries to engage with something she can't understand, and that kills her right away. So it's the idea that, like, the town's dying, the old ways are dead, but the old ways are the ways that would save us in this situation. And that's also something fascinating in the figure of Father Callahan to me is so yeah. interesting in that respect. He talks about differentiation between lowercase evil and all caps evil. Yeah. Um, and so he's sort of the, the, the banality of evil in his daily life and where he sees it is seeing Sandy McDougal come to confession and confess to beating her infant child. He doesn't have the tools to help her he as a man of the cloth can't really help her in a way of talking to social services or helping her get out of that marriage or move away from the town or whatever and he talks about the position of the church as shifting to being more about like these social issues and about the daily small petty evil but what's so interesting Mm -hmm. is he wants to have a great big pitched battle against capital evil but i honestly think that if he spent more time fighting the daily small evil, he would have some faith in his power to combat the big evil. And so it's kind of because he longs for the old days when the problems were bigger and because he... It's weird, right? Because he's a a modern man, but he longs for the prelapsarian times when fighting... Weirdly, his version of prelapsarian is when, like, evil was bigger. Um, Mm -hmm. And when it wasn't petty and small, but when it was like these big monsters. And then he's so out of touch with what faith actually looks like in his day-to-day life that he has no faith on which to draw when he is confronted with the big evil, which I think is really interesting. Especially because he talks about how... um, who is it? I think Barlow talks about, like, calls him a false priest and says that he was old when Christianity was just getting started. But then there's also, like, this deeper power that goes beyond Christian faith that is trapped in, like, the, the holy symbols in the crucifixes and all of that stuff um, that the characters do channel. But there's sort of, there's the white and the dark, which is also a thing that Stephen King does a lot. Barlow is a figure of the dark that predates Christianity, but the forces of good do not, are not wholly dependent on Christianity. Callahan is just such an interesting paradox of a character to me, because he's like the wrong man to be alive now to confront those problems, but then he's also the wrong man because he's alive now to confront the the problems from the old world, like the old evil, and I just think that's so, Mm -hmm. such a weird and cool tension that like goes on, and plays very interestingly into like what what the, the book does with modernity. Yeah, it's, I don't know, I feel, Father Callahan is a very frustrating character for me. Oh, he is very much. There's a lot of build-up, right? There's a lot of, we gotta talk to Father Callahan, we Mm -hmm. gotta get to him, and then you finally do, and it's just very anticlimactic, and I know it's, like, written Mm -hmm. that way, and I know Stephen King's own thoughts about religion and organized religion are coming through here, where he's like, it's, it's crap, right? It's not actually Mm -hmm. good for anything, you just need a strong moral sense of right and wrong. And the idea that his characters can never be good and be religious. These ideals are opposed in his mind. Well, like, and so it always comes through where his characters that are religious are not good characters, and his characters that are good mm-hmm. are like Ben, where it's like, eh, you know, I just think mm-hmm. you should not be a dick. And that's what gets it through of like him saving yeah. a child, even though he didn't necessarily have to. Like, mm-hmm. that's what saves him through this narrative. And Father Callahan has this kind of performative faith where he's like, 
I just need a big enough fight. Dude, you could be doing stuff about this the entire fucking time. It's not like priests can't do things. Like, Mm -hmm. yes, what you say in confession is privileged information. They can't repeat it. But, like, they could still talk to you after church and be like, hey, why don't you come to my office and let's chat? You know, I'm a resource for you in our community. Like, they could do things about stuff. So this is very, so this is kind of a personal thing, and my thoughts on this are not really clearly articulated, but there's, and I'm, and I think that they will continue to develop as we continue reading, and as we read books with characters who are more alcoholic, and as books are written while Stephen is himself struggling more heavily mm-hmm. with alcoholism, and there's a lot of interesting tendrils of ideas when you talk about how people talk about their alcoholism mm-hmm. um, is very much like all you have to do is just not take the first drink and I think of it a little bit like mental push-ups um, yeah or like uh, like brushing your teeth right um, if you do the daily work of you feel kind of shitty so you talk to someone about it you like go to a meeting you spend some time examining why you're thinking this thing that's why you go through the steps and stuff like you do all this work so that you have the tools at your disposal in those dire times Mm -hmm. and so father callahan like is a figure who is himself an alcoholic um which also plays into his own sort of concept of his self-worth and his loathing and whatever. But, like, he doesn't do the the push-ups in his day-to-day life of helping people to the best of his ability as a priest in his actual job. He spends all of this time, like, wishing that it was something else and yeah. that it looked different. And, that he, and he's like, if I was in this big battle situation, I'd be able to handle it. And it's like, well, do you in your daily life? handle it do you help these people do you feel god in your life and and in the world like no yeah so what makes you think it'll be any different if it's on a bigger scale and so that was something in the back of my head and something that i'm really especially like god when we get to the shining um it's going to be really interesting going mm-hmm. through this. i don't know he just so you're right he's he's not doing any of the things that he could be doing to make Mm-hmm. any part of his daily life better and it's just frustrating to know that if this hadn't happened if he hadn't had this big moment and trauma and whatever he would have just mm-hmm. kept keeping on living in the shitty town with shitty people never doing anything to make their lives better except for trying yeah. to make sure their funerals were short that's it that's all he does yeah <laughs> that's not helpful it's just frustrating, really and yeah. I don't know. The depictions of religion are really interesting in King's work. Um, like, so, like, this... He loves his Christian religious fanatics, He though. fucking loves them. He? he sure does. And it's, it's a freak, because this book, like all books about vampires, is an intensely moral book. It's not yes. a Christian book, but it's an intensely moral book. Uh, it's here to teach us moral lessons, and that's how we avoid vampires. <laughs> Stay in school, do your homework, or you're gonna get vampires, kids. That's a very, uh, what the TV Tropes page would call a space whale Aesop. <laughs> but it, it's very, I mean... Which is, side note, my favorite fact about, like, if you go on Wikipedia and you just search, quote, the one with the whales, end quote, it will automatically redirect you to Star Trek for the voyage home. I... It's my favorite fucking thing. I'm sorry, but Shatner you were saying something so about what our podcast is movie. actually about. 
Yeah, I, Shatner looks so bad in that movie. <laughs> Sorry. It's funny. I but think that, does. like, the two types of Star Trek fans that there are for the original series are the people who think that the Voyage Home is terrible and the people who think that it is amazing. I don't uh, believe... I don't believe in them. Anyway. Believe in what? People who think Space it's wheels? amazing. Oh my god, no, they do exist, and... No. I follow some of them on Tumblr. Anyway, we were talking about... Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, all vampire novels and all vampire works are, like, intensely moral things. Um, mm-hmm. There's this idea that I'm super gung-ho about, uh, that transgression begets transgressions. Like, so we have Ooh, a town yes. that's just constantly sinning. Everyone in this fucking town is sinning. And we kind of, we don't get it, we get kind of the, like normal to small town gossip like oh you know that guy's wife ran away a couple years ago blah 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 and it's mm-hmm. only once mike attacks matt matt has a heart attack and then like there's mm-hmm. a whole section where it talks about how like the town has secrets and then it goes through like some of the gossip you had heard in the earlier sections oh, yeah, and, and it like tells, tells you, like, you what, what actually, actually happened, happened yeah. and how deeply fucked up it is yeah his wife didn't run away with like, a traveling oh, salesman think- he killed her and put her in a well yeah like this reverend has sexual fantasies about children this gas station owner likes to put on women's clothing oh yeah that was (sighs) you know equally immoral things equally horrible things yeah to king in this time love it feels Mm -hmm. good feels great i it's 1975 i guess (laughs) anyway we're not here to get into LGBT representation in Stephen King's works because we'll just be screaming for a couple hours. We hear about these we're actual not, horrible things only after we realize vampires are here and they're happening. And then it's and like, like, also, by the way, you know that guy whose wife ran away? He actually murdered her. And you find out that the town is even worse than you thought it was, which you didn't yeah. think the town was good. There was constant, everyone's so fucking nosy all the time people are like reading each other's letters and like yeah listening in on your phone calls like what it said there was a line about mabel Wirtz, and it was like for the first time in either 40 or 60 years she didn't pick up the phone to listen to people yeah the first time in multiple decades she bought special binoculars just to spy on people there's so much alcoholism there's so much abuse there's mm-hmm. a lot of rape. There's a lot of pedophilia. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, lo- a lot of homophobia. A lot of racism. Good old sexism. Yeah. Although that's kind of treated as like, that's how people act. It's fine. Yeah. But like, everyone's killing their wives or wishing their wives would die or fantasizing about teenage girls or doing something horrible. Mm-hmm. And then you find out that it's actually even worse than you thought it was. Oh, yeah, that lady who's having an affair, she's about to get brutally beaten and raped by her husband. And mm-hmm. King really wants you to know. Oh, yeah. He wants you to know this town is horrible. And so it's this idea that, like, they deserve vampires, more or mm-hmm. less. They they have these horrible, sinful lives, and they're doing terrible things. And so when a horrible thing happens to them, you're like, yeah, you deserve to be bitten by a vampire because you are also evil. Mm-hmm. And that's why, like, the only people that really make it out alive are a child, you know, and a literal who child lived in the town for yeah, someone who comes to the town and is like, "What the fuck is wrong with everyone?" And then mm-hmm. 
saves a child, so he has this kind of paternal role of, I have to protect the innocent, and so it's okay that he survives. Also, oh, okay, the fucking... And maybe I would love to get into some Lily gets, like deep into vampire lore business and maybe this can be our little segue but the thing that I read and I was like I guess I get where and why this is coming from but it doesn't keep it from bothering me and that's specifically the fact that Ben has to be the one to kill Susan because they slept together so he is her husband and it was just I don't like it it's like a a one-to-one comparison to in Dracula, when they have to kill Lucy, straight up Van Helsing is like, Arthur, this is your wife, you have to kill her. Are they actually they He doesn't say like that. Uh, no, it's right before their wedding that she dies. Okay. But, uh, like, but it's her betrothed, like, yeah. he's okay. She's already his property. Mm-hmm. In the eyes of the law and God, I guess. So to mm-hmm. Van Helsing, he's like, this is the only proper thing to do. Even though metaphorically speaking several characters in the text have already had sexual relationships with her um Mm -hmm. and then literally several of them have been like in love with her and had real relationships with her but because they have like a contract in each other of marriage it's his responsibility okay so arthur is the one that has to do it and it's like a whole horrible traumatic thing but it's kind of like this weird comparison king didn't want them to be engaged (laughs) So he was just like, that's your girlfriend, you gotta kill her. That's what the book said, so. Thanks. They're just toting around one abridged copy of Dracula the whole time, being like, what the fuck? Alright, it says we gotta do this, and they're just like going for it and seeing what happens. Nothing good. And then Matt starts speaking in a decidedly formal and antiquated tone of voice, and then they're like, he reminded me of Van Helsing. Yeah, he has a heart attack and becomes Van Helsing. Steven, listen. Listen, Steven. I know that, like, I, I see what you're doing here. But some of the weaker moments of this are when it's explicitly... Do, do you get it? It's... It's it's Dracula. Do you... See what we're doing? Because it's... It's like in Dracula. Lucy and, and Arthur and, and they're supposed to be married. And like, Van Helsing is like the vampire hunter. And now Matt. Matt is like the see, And it's just like, yes, I get it. I do. Thank you. I don't know. Listen, one-to-one metaphors, one-to-one comparisons, one-to-one, like, adaptational elements are usually not very good. This novel doesn't have as many leading female characters as Dracula does, Mm, so you cannot make the comparisons. Wow. Which, first of all, let's just take a second with that one. I know. So it's, like, kind of weird because Mark takes on a Mina role mm. where he's like innocent and must be protected but he'll pop up and be like here's something really helpful and they'll be like wow mm-hmm. oh my god that's amazing that you were able to have a thought you know how we treat mm-hmm. children and women the same way yeah uh, and then like except we don't because Mark fucking knows more than Susan yeah like Susan's kind of the Lucy character like she's the first to die that we care about mm-hmm. she doesn't get to be useful or involved in the vampire slain squad really like 
Yeah. She, in fact, doesn't listen to their advice and then gets murdered, just like Lucy. They're like, could you close your fucking windows at night? And Lucy's like, I don't know, maybe. (laughs) And they're like, wear this garlic. And she's like, no. (laughs) And they're like, Susan, can you go do this thing? And she's like, yeah, I'm not going to go sneak into this house by myself. Also, here's the thing. I am a female identifying person. And I call people bitch, and I refer to myself as a bitch and a bench and whatever. And on the one hand, Susan is calling herself a bitch, but on the other hand, Susan was written by Stephen King, a man, and wrote her to be yelling at herself, and so put the word bitch into her mouth. And I was just not a fan of it. Yeah... I get what you're doing, and I myself would feel the same way and yell at myself in the same way, but it is different, and I'm not cool with it. But also, I will make allowances because this is in the 70s, but I won't make that many allowances because I can't live my life that way. And, like, you gotta think, I know at least with Carrie, it's very explicit that he was like, I straight up asked my wife for help writing this female character because I didn't know how to write Mm. this female character. And I don't know... Steve. Steven, you still don't, but... Yeah, and I don't know if he, like, continued, if he was like, hey, if you were in this situation, how would you feel, beautiful wife of mine whom I love so much? I hope that's how he talks to her. Uh, And she was like, I would feel like a stupid bitch. And he was like, write that down. (laughs) Verbatim. And she was like, what? Oh, okay. It's just frustrating. Like, she's so, I'm gonna do it. And then she gets schooled by a child. And it's like... Everyone in this book is not like other girls. She's so smart. Like, why... Father Why Callahan she isn't make this like mistake? other priest girls. Susan isn't like other horror movie girls, except she is. Mark isn't like other child girls. Ben isn't like other writer. Everyone in this book is not like other girls. It's just, it's so frustrating. Saying, Susan deserved a lot better. She really is also, just like a can set Can we take piece. a second and talk about how Anne Norton was fucking right about artists and writers? Yeah, like she was wrong about Which, like, also everything. Yeah. But she was but right. <laughs> she was right to be suspicious of the dude who just came into town, who is an author, who's making time with her daughter in parks. She's right to be worried about that. This is a whirlwind romance, and she has no way of knowing if Ben is actually going to stay or if she's just going to sweep in, break her daughter's heart, and then leave. Like, that is a very legitimate thing to be afraid about. And I just want to give her the credit she deserves in that one particular instance for being right to be worried about this guy and about her daughter. Yeah. She's still also wrong about Floyd. I also did like when Susan was like, that nice Floyd Tibbetts put Ben in the hospital, you know? Boom, got him, man. Also, Floyd is the same age as Ben because they were kids together, and so the age difference isn't the thing that upsets the mom. It's, like, the writerly out-of-townness. I thought it was also, like, Floyd was a little older than King because he talks about how he was, like, always the hangers-on and they, like, never wanted him to hang out with him. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. And I thought it was because, like, he was a little younger. I can't see... I didn't save any quotes around that time so I don't think I have it mm-hmm. but I did save the part where they're making out for the first time and Susan says he's tasting me that's fucking terrible I don't think Steve Stevie Stevo really has a good handle on sex scenes 
do you want to talk more about vampires or do we want to get into our Marxist analysis of this book? Uh, let's do a little Marxism because I think the vampire okay. thing is going to be like a fun ending. Okay, okay. Well, I do want to ask, I have some like just questions about assorted things from vampire lore. Oh, yeah. We can end on, end on vampires. Gotcha. So, yes. Which I think we'll, we'll uh, also probably talk about some of them during Marxism. Probably, <laughs> like yes. All things. Listen, so, yeah, we, yeah, it's kind of inextricably tied to vampire lore. Yeah. I have a liberal arts English degrees understanding of Marxism, and that means that I have done a little bit of reading of Marxist theory and a lot of talking about it, so, and I think, Lily, you're more familiar than I am, um, but... I found it really interesting. Something that I didn't pick up on until this time around, which also makes sense because I've become much more of a leftist this time around than I ever was before. <laughs> Sorry, Dad. But, you know, here we are. Um, yeah. So Larry Crockett uh, is the real estate agent. He's like a real estate lawyer, I guess. Um, or he's a real estate agent, and then he also has lawyers, I think. Yeah. Um, I think that's what that is. But so he is like this dumpy little real estate office and he is secretly worth about $2 million. Um, and the book devotes a good amount of time to explaining how he came into all of this money and that it was basically through exploiting zoning laws. So mm -hmm. he could make a huge profit by selling trailers to all of the blue collar people in town who all live in this one area called the Bend, which is like, it's, yeah, it's, it's the poorest section of town. Mm -hmm. um, he, in this case, has made literal millions of dollars by selling kind of shit homes to poor people. At outrageous rates, by yes, the way. Their rates. bank loan rates yes. are like 24%. Yeah, so he is very much the financial... So he is also the person who sells the storefront and the Marston house to Barlow and Straker and lets them come into the town. Mm -hmm. um, I confess, I've reread this multiple times, and I never understand how exactly he turns an outrageous profit when he sells the home for a dollar. So it's because they're trading him other land that's valued much higher and it's okay, interesting because okay. like they don't have cash money because vampires are very like old world mm -hmm. you don't think of them as having bank accounts but what they can they do, do land. yeah they can have land and they can have you know people who they compel to give them things or to make deals with mm -hmm. people on their behalf so they're like we'll give you one dollar and then this block of land that's already worth a lot of money and that they're putting a shopping center on, so it's going to be worth even more money when that sells. Oh, modernity. Look yeah, at that. We will, you'll get that. And that's worth mm -hmm. way more than the house and the, the old laundromat is worth. Mm -hmm. And so he's yes. like, mm -hmm. fucking, yeah. And it's interesting because they seek him out. They're their first they stop. They do. They don't go and to any also, other real estate agents. And they seek him out a year before they move to the yeah. town. Um, and it's also interesting because he spends the many times thinking about deals with the devil like in those terms yeah. explicitly like and he thought about deals with the devil and he has 
the feeling that something weird is going on because he doesn't understand. He's like, look, I got a really good deal, but this can't be all that's going on. There must be some. It is too good to be true, but I'm not going to question it and I'm going to take it as the truth. Yeah, he's not only the first person that they come to in terms of like real estate deals, he's also the first person that they approach and they approach him about a year before they actually come to the rest of the town before yeah. they make any other requests of him. And they um, know about him. They know who his lawyer is. They know what he's doing. Yes, they do. And so they know, mm-hmm. like, A, he'll make the steal. B, when they need things during the town, like they're staying in town, he'll cut them up and he'll be discreet and he won't tell anybody about mm-hmm. it. And so he kind of becomes this, like, Renfield character. The original Renfield. So he goes to trans. He's a solicitor, old-timey mm-hmm. lawyer, and he goes there to like, secure a land deal for Count Dracula in London. Mm-hmm. Like, that's his whole thing, because he's selling Dracula land. Mm-hmm. And, like, businesses and stuff. And then, mm-hmm. I don't know, Dracula's like, you too tasty. And they have to get a different solicitor sent out to Transylvania <laughs> oh to finish God. the deal, because Renfield mm-hmm. went nutso, because he got fed on too much. Mm-hmm. And they're like, ah, it was just before the deal was signed. You go out there, Jonathan. And we don't have that relationship with, mm-hmm. I, I guess, Ben is the Jonathan character. Technically, and like we don't have any relationship between him and Larry Crockett mm-hmm. in the way Dracula does, but it's a pretty good comparison. And you don't really get to hear much about Renfield in Dracula, and it is interesting mm-hmm. to get that perspective of a guy who's not good, but is understandably not good. Like, he's not mm-hmm. a wild villain or anything, he's just a nasty capitalist who doesn't care about human life. Which is also interesting in terms of the whole banality of evil plot. This is what shady, like, this is what bad people look like in the modern age, is they charge outrageous prices for poor people to be able to live in trailers. That's what it is. And so that's very interesting as, like, going back to that whole theme. Dracula is a novel that pretty explicitly loves capitalism. Mm. (laughs) At its core. New world capitalism, like... It's the old royal aristocracy as opposed to capitalism, because one of the other main characters is a lord, Mm. and Jonathan's like a lawyer, and one of them's a doctor, one of them's Mm -hmm. a cowboy. (laughs) You know, all the classic upper crust professions, you know. know. They're all rich, wealthy dudes in Dracula, Mm -hmm. and they ultimately triumph using their modern capitalistic ideas over this old world count who doesn't understand how like capitalism works and doesn't understand how that power can be harnessed to save Mm -hmm. women from hot foreign dudes. He's not hot in the novel. He's pretty ugly, but you know. Yeah, but uh, yeah, so to go back to our, our, our Marxist reading is Larry Crockett is a capitalist figure and he makes money on the backs of the poor and he leeches what in a capitalist system is their metaphorical life force the money from them and then he is the gateway that lets the vampires literally feed off of their life force and the lifeblood of the town and so it's also fascinating that the land that he gets from the like old money old world people that he trades is where a mall is going yeah. in, a shopping center that is going to kill the mom and pop stores and so there's this weird thing where it is still 
like mom and pop stores is still stores it's still profit and capitalism but it's like the agrarian smaller scale livelihood versus the modern conglomerate yeah like corporate yeah the marxist reading does fill through a little bit because you do have to consider the fact that these people still have businesses and whatever but it is also leading to the destruction of the town is the figure of the vampire as a leech on human life and then the leech who profits the leech who sustains himself off of money yeah and to kind of support that because i remember like at first i was reading it and i thought it was so funny the idea that barlow and straker were gonna open up a store and i was like oh yeah this ancient vampire is gonna be in the back balancing the books like that's fucking hilarious Mm -hmm. but it's interesting because they more they talk about they're like yeah, summer tourists are going to be our main market, so they're going to use this mm-hmm. this needless consumerism that we so desperately crave as a way of entrapping people, basically. Like, I think that's mm-hmm. the implication, is that they open the store and they're mm-hmm. going to get victims from it. People are going to come yeah, into and... the store and they're going to kill them, and mm-hmm. it's that mind... Because they talk about how, like, everything in the store is overpriced and unnecessary, mm-hmm. and it's not good clean capitalism like going to the grocery store and just getting a meal mm-hmm. for your family it's that needless consumerism of like i don't mm-hmm. need an 800 hundred dollar sideboard but i want it and i think i'm special if i buy it so i'm going mm-hmm. to well yeah the the character at the dump dud rogers actually says he sold yeah a, a headboard to some tourist who thought about like oh the new england authenticity and he had filed off that it was made in a factory that was like stamped on it somewhere but he's also kind of like a character on the outskirts he is physically deformed he has a hump um he lives in the dump he shoots at rats he like he's a pedophile trash he's a pedophile um not letting it go interesting let us not forget Ruthie Crockett, who, like, it is so interesting to me that King has a lot of characters who, it's a book, it's set in a small town, there are, like, a lot of different small town archetypes that show up a lot in his books. They're, like, the Stephen King small town archetypes, and one of them is the schoolyard bully who is the son of the town drunk, or a town drunk, who's also abusive. And then there's the town gossip character, and then there's the evangelical religious person, and then there's your garden variety pedophiles and uh, etc. But one of those people is the uh, personified Madonna whore complex. Yeah. (laughs) Like the anthropomorphic, like the very concept of the Madonna whore complex distilled into one being who we never actually meet as a character. That's Ruthie Crockett in this book because we have no way of knowing anything about her other than everyone who's gross in this town has the hots for her and likes to talk about the fact that Ruthie Crockett doesn't wear a bra and they fantasize about her. She's this figure of desire, but I'm pretty sure that she's just a girl listen sometimes you just don't want to wear a bra like i don't know what to tell you everyone and does everyone this. including some of the women are like oh that slut i wasn't i wasn't like other girls this is i'm not like other girls the book i swear there's to god part- like i wasn't like ruthie crockett i didn't gallivant around and so there's something interesting to me that it's never mentioned really like you know because she's pretty much always referred to as ruthie crockett and it's larry crockett that like she is his daughter I just want to mention, I don't even know necessarily what to make of it, but I want to mention that she is the Madonna whore archetype 
character in this. We never learn anything about her other than that all of the characters that are gross fantasize about her, which tells me that, like, we are meant to intuit that she actually isn't that way at all. Um, like, that's my reading of it anyway. So that dichotomy character is represents so much of the town's transgression just by virtue of how everyone talks about her there's a part where matt and ben are talking about her her. like they're eating it's when he comes over spaghetti her lisp yeah it's like matt asks mimicking ruthie crockett's sexy little girl lisp and ben's like like, she's quite a piece because she's a child yeah she's not doing a bit that's her little girl lisp She's a she's yeah, a like little girl. She's a little girl. She's, she's and a kid. She has a lisp. She's not quite like, a piece, Ben. She's a child. Well, I mean, Ben was okay asking Susan out for an ice cream when he thought that she was seven years younger. Yeah, and she's what twenty three. So, yeah, which would have been thirteen. Not great, Benjamin. No, that's no. ten years. I can count. Sixteen. I can do math. Thank you. Right? Jesus Christ. Yeah. Still not great. I know it's the 70s, but that's still I thought she was a teenager, and it's like, that's terrible. And then you have, I don't know, it's just, it's very frustrating. And when you hear her talked about, they're always like, oh, her and her cardigans. And I'm like, you mean that thing I wear to church? Yeah. That sexy piece of clothing? I mean, there is a thing of the sweater girl. That's a trope on tvtropes.org. The the notion of like, and it it is a very 50s and I think also 60s and probably also 70s because the 70s was very nostalgic for the 50s in a lot of way. Like, archetype of, like, the girl who wears the sexy, tight-fitting sweater. And, it like, it's a sweater, so it covers all of her body, but it's also really tight, so it's revealing. Yeah, it's and this weird like, hey, male fantasy of, dichotomy. like, a normal thing a woman would just wear to be warm and comfortable. And they're like, okay, that's but, great, like, but could you oh, make it so good sexy. for me? Could I, the man, have a say in your sweater? Because that's what's really important to me. And, like, exactly this this weird fantasy of, ooh, she's wearing that sweater because she wants me to know that she's hot to trot. And it's like, she's wearing a sweater because mm-hmm. she's wearing a fucking sweater. Exactly. It's chilly out. She's not yeah. wearing a bra because she's a child. She might not know she needs to yet. Yeah, she has a childish lisp because she's a child with a lisp. Like, yeah. Maybe she's giggly when you're around, dud, because you're fucking staring at her tits and she's uncomfortable. Everything about that? Yeah. (laughs) Leave her alone. You also love to shoot rats in your pastime, so, like, you can't really get up on your moral high horse about how you're just a regular dude here, because, uh, you're not. You like to shoot rats and, like, name them after people you know, including Ruthie Crockett. And, like, you wonder why she's creeped out when you look at her. Because you like, fantasize about murdering her and fucking her all the time. Also, the jackass bus driver, oh I just, God. he's just such a hate sink. Every time he shows up, I'm like, us oh, you again, like. He's terrible, but he is also, as a child, what you thought your bus driver was like. That's true. <laughs> like, he's a horrible man who hates fun and thinks that we're all doing something evil. And he's like, he's a human being who's fucking sick of ha- being around that many children. In okay, real life, but probably. To be fair, but like, I I do think that the volume of kickings off of the bus yeah, like, is Yeah, like, he's a actually ridiculous. a terrible person, but, like, you know, in real oh, like life, it's, like, but like, based yeah, yeah. off of real life, the idea like, of a bus driver, which is just, like, a normal person who you could have empathy for, and instead he becomes, like, this horrible villain. Yes, that's true. I had a really nice elementary school bus driver, actually. I don't remember any like, of mine, so I think they were friend. fine. 
what else can we talk about? I'm going down the list. Um, Stephen loves kennings related to sex that moralistic people say. I just yeah. want to mention this because it is not the first, it is not the last time it will happen. It will only happen more often. Carrie had dirty pillows. This has sex book. Um, a kenning, by the way, is exactly what it is. It's when you take two different words and you push them together into one. Um, which, can we think of, like, an amusing or, like, a meme-based kenning? I know there are some. Oh, there are definitely some. The McElroys use them a lot with boy. So, like, yeah. they refer to, um, Truck Shepherd as they thought they were telling the story of a spacefaring kiss boy. Um. So, and then they decide to turn his head into an asterisk. <laughs> but yeah, I'm like, Kennings are definitely making a comeback in a good and cool way, but also Steven really loves things related to sex. Yeah, he loves, like, sex Kennings. Yeah, they come up a lot. He loves he loves being very moral, but he really wants you to know that in his morality, sex is totally fine. It's very 1970s. Yeah. It is. It's like, oh, that's your big concession? We can fuck? Great. Cool. Thanks. Thanks. You hate feminists, but, like, great. We can fuck. Yes. I did really love, uh, I noted this the last time that I read this, too, which is Susan's, like, very pagro calling out of Ben's mansplaining. Uh, Ben lectured me on the linguistic meanings of can't yesterday, so I won't use that word. And I was just like, got him! Um... Also, like, he does some, he does snark pretty well, does our Steven. Yeah, that's true. Um, He's funny. I also have the quote, uh, Matt and Dr. Cody are talking to each other about, like, hey, were you introduced to Ben? He's like, oh, you were, but only in passing. Uh, this is Jimmy Cody, local quack, uh, meet Ben Mears, local hack, and vice versa. <laughs> and then Jimmy says, he's always been clever that way. That's how he made all his money. And I just really like that. I did, too. Anyway. I like, I like his like Cody's response but I thought Matt's actual said it was like so funny can you imagine if some guy said that on the fly when you were talking that would be incredible but it's written so it's not as funny because you're like oh you have time to think about the joke like yeah local quack meet the local hack while he's like in the midst of being deeply traumatized by a former student dying in his home from a vampire trying to figure out if yeah he has the moment to be like oh also i'm very funny yes but did you know that i'm hilarious (laughs) i think ben has a lot of the egregious stephen king xp traits but i think that mark also has some of them i mean he has the dream from stephen's literal childhood um he's the one who is like really fond of uh, he has, like, all of the little monster toys, and he also knows, like, all of the vampire stuff, which I think is a thing that, like, Steven was probably very enamored of things that went bump in the night as a child. Yeah. Um, they're definitely, like... But, like, he will definitely get better at writing kids, but Mm -hmm. this is, like, we do see some of the bones of that balance of, um, the ability of children to accept everything as true and therefore to be able to, like, disconnect from horror in a way that adults can't. Yeah. And I do think it's interesting, like, Mark is definitely a young Stephen King character and Ben is definitely, like, Mm -hmm. uh, in what was the present time Stephen King character. I mentioned this a little bit beginning, but, like, the idea of Ben as Stephen, I don't want to, like, 
get into King's psychology too much, but it's very interesting, one might say, that his narrative Mm -hmm. revolves around an older self rescuing his younger self from the traumas he's facing and kind of... Wow, I didn't even think of that, and I love that so much. It's very interesting. Also interesting that he's like, hey, yeah my wife is dead and it's my fault kind of anyway who are you steven yeah you y'all y'all right there why can't you have just been married or never been married why did you write the i had a wife who was nice she's dead that's all we know about her i mean yeah if we're following on the like he already has like a dead dad and a mother who killed herself and an aunt yeah, who like, died. I think we have enough tragic backstory. He could have just been single Especially... when he showed up, but, like, he didn't want to seem pathetic. Like, a guy Maybe, in his 30s, but he could have aged him down. I he know. didn't have to it's... do it like this. It's all I'm he saying. Did not. It did not have to be this way. It's just, like, making another woman a plot device instead of a character. Yes. Which is frustrating to me. And also, I think it's very weird when you're, like... Ben is a Stephen King character. It's like, well, Stephen King's happily married, I thought. And a wife, yeah. A beautiful wife whom we love and owe a lot to. Ugh, yes, we do. Uh, but yeah, he, like, literally rescues his himself. He mm-hmm. he wishes he could go back in time and be like, you're right, scary things are real. Don't feel stupid for believing in them. But also, you're mm-hmm. safe now. We're going to go to Mexico. And then we're going to come back and burn this town to the fucking ground. Hey, kids, you want to play with matches? What every child wishes an adult would say to them. You're safe and I've got matches. Uh, Talk to me about garlic dogs with ghost eyes and roses, please. I... (laughs) Sounds like a start to like... Garlic dogs and some roses walk into a bar. Mm, and and the bar is safe. <laughs> uh, so garlic is a little... It's really... It's the garlic flowers that repel vampires. And it's similar with roses in that like they are these white flowers that kind of represent innocence and goodness. Mm. And they are a, a symbol. Most of the things that repel vampires are heavily symbolic in like very old ways that like you still see today of course but like it's very difficult to dig into like why white flowers have always been this kind of symbol as innocence and purity Mm. and like we know this and we have guesses and we know why it is in the modern age when we have these kind of racial elements but this goes Mm -hmm. back incredibly far in history so it's like kind of hard to Mm -hmm. piece it out and I think that's part of why they're so commonly associated with vampires because vampires also go back really, really far. And no mm-hmm. one's really sure how they started. Unless they're real. But, like, multiple cultures mm-hmm. have kind of the same myths that evolved that are basically yeah. vampires. So it's hard to like, pin Which down, is, like, like, where vampires started from. Very interesting to me in terms of, like, what what humans across time and space find scary. Yeah commonness of like vampires and just um yeah i mean vampires is probably like the best Mm -hmm. example the best example that i can think about right now but like what forms witchcraft takes and um different demons and when and why they appear versus spirits and etc yeah i don't know Mm -hmm. one in dogs is a little harder because there are a lot of conflicting things so 
In some stories, mm-hmm. vampires can either control wolves or turn into wolves, and that's a lot of vampires mm-hmm. are also werewolves. So a lot of the times, it's kind of completed between the two, and like sometimes, if you get bitten by a vampire under certain conditions, you just turn into a werewolf. It's not very muddled. Nice. Um, so there's kind of that kind of affinity. Wolves are a servant of vampires, and dogs and wolves are kind of the same thing. So you see that sometimes, but you also see um, there's an old superstition that the first body in a graveyard would be a ghost. Like, the first person you buried would would not be able to cross over. So a lot of times what they did was that they would bury a dog first. And so the dog would become a ghost, and then also it would become kind of a guardian for the other spirits in the graveyard, and kind of keep away danger and help them cross over because dogs are really nice (laughs) dogs are really nice it's true so you have that also like that kind of opposite imagery of them being like the protector of the good human spirit and keeping Mm -hmm. us safe from things that would harm us in death like vampires which are trying to steal our soul Mm -hmm. um also that poor dog i know it's very sad barlow he hates dogs he thinks they're he really disgusting does. and it's interesting because you're like well, what side of this are you <laughs> on and then there's uh like superstition of like the grim like a black dog that yeah, kind of yeah i was gonna say yeah mm-hmm. haunts churchyards haunts churchyards and portent of death yeah and just bad things in general if you see a black dog like a mm-hmm. black cat it's supposed to mean something bad's gonna happen so it kind of side note i just reminded myself of the fact that I hate the trope of arbitrary skepticism so much, and I was reminded of this because of one Hermione Granger, and like, you were raised a muggle, you find out that magic is real, but you don't think that other things outside of your experience of the magical world can exist. Excuse you, I'm tired. There's already magic. What are you talking about? But Crumplehorn's Snorkax aren't real. There's already magic, but, like, and ghosts, but there can't be a dog that haunts churchyards and is a death harbinger. Like, what are you talking about, Hermione Jean? Yeah. Anyway, I digress. It's bonkers. But yeah, so there's, it's kind of conflicting on the dogs one, but garlic and the like roses are very clear like they are good innocent things and vampires hate Mm -hmm. that (laughs) hate that shit they hate it uh let's play bingo uh yeah i think i might have bingo Ooh, okay i have as usual i have one that i'm a little bit on the fence i have i have Uh, two okay so i have the protagonist or principal character is a writer yes uh, so we didn't, we got a sex scene with description of women's breast disease, so I counted that. Yeah, um, there's also that part where Dud is fantasizing about Ruthie Crockett, and there is a yeah. lot of talk about nipples there. I wasn't sure if it counted, because yeah. it's not a sex scene, it's a molestation scene. Yes. Well, that checks off villain rapes a character or fantasizes about doing so, yeah. which also happens. I had a question about that, because I was like... To Bonnie. Well... All of them are kind of villains, except for, like, our main See, cast of I people. Counted I counted yeah. it because it, it wasn't, like, a main character, but it was a villainous character that was, clearly there was an emotional weight to the fact that this had happened to her, Yeah. So I counted it. I... Um, abusive or neglectful parents, yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, small band of Fireforge friends band together to defeat the evil. Of yeah. course. 
ancient unknowable evil. Oh, yeah. Because there's the idea, like, the town is evil, the house has always been evil, Mm -hmm. it just attracts evil. And also, Barlow is, like, as old as fucking time. And he's there. He's older than Christianity, so. Yeah. He's at least several thousand years old. Um, Villain or monster uses sexist and racist slurs. Fucking animal cruelty and death graphically described. Oh, yeah. Poor dog. Dock the dog. Um, free space. Something evil looks beneath the surface of this place. Ooh. Uh, precocious child or children forced to save the day. Character has an addiction. The book is set in Maine. The character speaks in a phonetic accent many characters oh, yeah. times. Uh, maggots and or rotting corpses. So those are all mine. I do not have a bingo. However, I am very... Do we think that there is a stream of consciousness internal monologue? I don't really think so. There were a couple small bits. There were a couple moments, but I think that it appears more strongly in other works, so I was okay letting that go. But if we were counting that, then I would have a bingo. But I do not. Does it count um, the depraved homosexual trope if none of them are actually homosexual, but people just think they are? Because there's the I don't know. There's a lot of focus. I mentioned this briefly earlier when they're listing out all mm-hmm. the horrible things that are happening, and they're like, also the oh, gas station woman, yeah, and like furiously masturbates. And you're like, and it's like put in this way that's like in between these horrible acts of straight up murder, and like devil you know, worship. I would be willing to. I would be willing to count it for that. I think that that's that's sort of the the spirit, if not the letter of the law in this instance. Yeah. That was one that I was kind of like, uh, <laughs> they're wrong. Um, I did put, mm-hmm. so like, bully antagonist possessed by evil. Mm-hmm. Um, most notably, I guess, with Floyd. Although, again, he could just be so. like that. He could. <laughs> we don't S- Science know. fact, Floyd be like that sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Like, we don't know. We do not know. We are told, but... Do we know? We don't know. Um, I said bullies extremely cruel, specifically thinking about the bus driver. I, ooh, yes, yes. He's a bully. I think that that counts. Towards children. He's a bully, and he's extremely he's cruel. He's so mean for no goddamn reason. He's so mean. No many. I think those are the ones that I put down that you didn't have. But I do have I a did. bingo. I ooh. actually have two. Oh, God. All right. I got lucky this time. Is it luck? Because mm-hmm. it's not... Is it? I don't Great. Know. We'll see mm-hmm. how it goes. I feel like we were very close to horrible things happening to people's eyes in this one. I'm sure we'll get that one next time. It's coming. Oh, it's... It's coming. It's gotta happen. Does it count if it's my eyes? Doesn't. But my that eyes are damaged from this sorry. book. Fair. Having to read some of the things that these people have thought about or have done to other people they know and or are married to and allegedly care about question mark one would think one would care about their baby Mm. but you know you know uh it's fine my eyes hurt it's It's okay it's over now Mm -hmm. we're gonna move on to the bright shining the shining (laughs) 
Great. <laughs> what could possibly Nothing go Nothing bad happens. Not I'm <laughs> sure that I will have a lot to say when we get to the chapter where Jack gets to talk about going on the wagon, and I can just be like, you fundamentally misunderstand everything about this. Yeah. Not that I've been on it for that long, but, like, I'm trying to do it right, and uh, I got sure I'll have some, some things to say. I, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's so much to say we'll with see. The Shining. It'll be a real hoot. There is. Real holler. Just a, a fun time. <laughs> Should you read Salem's Lot, and what else would you recommend? I, I think you should read Salem Slot if you have a very strong positive outlook on life because otherwise it is very difficult to get through it it's very sad it's yes. it is scary but also it's just very sad it's a very cynical view of humanity and it small is. towns and it does kind of get to you because these are things that are real uh but if you don't mind that you know it's it's a it's a hoot i would recommend God help me, I would recommend reading Bram Stoker's Dracula. <laughs> Amazing! Both without reading Salem's Lot and before you would read mm-hmm. Salem's Lot. Mm-hmm. Because I do think it calls so much back to it. And it really is the OG, you know? I am not very well versed in vampires, so I feel like I don't really have a good reco for this. Um Listen, I love that abbreviation. That is pretty much the only way that I actually say recommendation is to call it a reco. You're right. Um, thank you, Nico Bakulich, Bakulich uh, from Sunday School Dropouts, guesting on the Da Vinci Code episode of I Don't Even Know Television for that particular abbreviation. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are great shows, by the way. You should check them out. Um, anyway, my reco is... If you want to stay, yeah, if you want to stay in the same vein of, like, vampire-ness, but you want something wildly different in tone and scope, um, I would recommend Let the Right One In. Mm. Um, there's Let the Right One In, and then there's an American remake, I believe starring Chloe Grace Moretz, called Let Me In, and that I have not seen, but I'm kind of opposed to, like, American remakes of good foreign stuff, just on principle. Yeah. Um, so, like, maybe it's good, I don't know, but I can absolutely tell you that Let the Right One In is very good. Um, and it is, yeah, like, set in an apartment complex, um, has a child protagonist, there is a vampire, um, there's interesting stuff with, like, growing up and childhood, which I think we get some of with Mark in this book. Um, it's very slow paced and a very small scale, so it's very different from Salem's Lot in that respect, but I do think that a lot of the, like, childhood trauma themes are still strong, and it's also just a really solid vampire film. So I guess I would recommend that. There you go. I did it. I think it's a good one. Uh, genuinely my favorite vampire movie is What We Do in the Shadows. It is so good. You haven't seen it? Yeah, that one is... What are you doing? If you haven't seen it, what are you doing? That's it's not like Salem's Lot. At it's all. It is a... very, very funny, but it's also very, very well-versed in vampire lore and different works. It's the best kind of parody. It's the kind that you cannot make unless you truly know a lot about and love a lot about the source material. Yeah, it's very good. Very funny. Mm-hmm. 
very funny. <laughs> yes. So. Yes. Yeah. Go watch that, and then um, after you go home for the holidays and you're feeling pretty fucking mad at your hometown, read Salem's Lot. Yeah, and then you'll feel justified in all of your sadness and hatred. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> That's a bummer, right. but yeah. Well, uh, thanks for listening. <laughs> I was going to say, we ended it on a happy note, and then it took a sharp turn uh, into disaster, not unlike what happens in this book. Ooh. Nice job, Marco. Ooh, that well-planned event. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. I am good at words. Well, next um, time we'll be talking about The Shining. Uh, I'm genuinely yes. very excited. So... Uh, me too. You guys should listen to it. Also, we're probably going to spend a lot of time talking about how much we love Wendy, because we love Wendy. A lot. She did nothing wrong. She did nothing wrong. Here's my morals from Stephen King. The women <laughs> did nothing wrong. Valid. And you should just move. Salem's Lot, another book that would be solved by just moving. By just moving not also the shining a problem that would have been solved by just leaving well it's a little more complicated and we'll get into but that. if they could have just left if windy and could have just left danny had just left yeah fucking anyway we'll anyway, get into we'll it we'll get into it it's fine yes we will yes uh this has been listen steven steven listen um you can follow uh our you can follow either of us on twitter although i don't know if lily is back on twitter uh, nope. but i am on twitter at what tefoxtrot w-h-a-t-t-e-h-f-o-x-t-r-o-t um you can email the show at listen pod at gmail.com um and you can also follow our show on twitter at listen underscore steven and you can also uh support the show on patreon uh patreon.com slash listen steven so yeah I think that's uh, about I it. Think, is that everything? Yeah. That's about it. All right. Don't email me about all the history facts I got wrong. Yeah. I'm just going to delete it. Okay. Yeah. Tell me about vampires. Just don't tell me about history. Yes. I don't care about history. Yes. Keep it spoopy. Yeah. Bye-bye. And we'll see you in, in two weeks.